Deep in God's Word is a Bible study for women. Each month, your host, Cindy Colley, will discuss the study highlights and answer some of your questions. You can find more information about the Digging Deep Bible Study at thecolleyhouse.org. Now let's grab our shovels and dig into the meat of God's Word. Good evening and welcome to the 2018 February edition of the Digging Deep Podcast. Great Escapes is our theme for this year. We are so glad that you're able to join us tonight. I was excited. Thank you, Jennifer, for all the work. I was excited to see pictures as we were progressing toward (laughs) the time um, that we were live. Um, She just learned something new every time. And we were just talking right before this began about what will we ever do? What will we ever do if she's unable to help us? So um, we need somebody to come in and train, and that's not an easy thing to do, is it? So It would be big big shoes to fill. That's right, and we are very thankful for her. I'm also thankful for you, Melissa, for coming tonight. Thank you for being here. This is Melissa Davidson, and this is your first podcast. This is my first podcast. Um, Pardon my gravelly voice. I had laryngitis over the weekend. Um, but yes, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad for this opportunity to um, study the word and share it with all of you. I really prayed hard for her that she'd be able to talk tonight, and God yes. has answered that. But if she needs a drink of water, we are easy here, and you just grab one, and we'll just proceed. If you even need to leave and cough, we're good with that. So we are thankful that you are here tonight. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. You've been at West Huntsville now for... Four years. Four years. We've been years? at West Huntsville. Really? Yes. It doesn't seem like that long. It has flown by, but it's been good years. She has uh, three beautiful children, and one of those was born here at West Huntsville. Joy is okay. now... Is she almost two? She'll be two in April. Okay. And Jill is 15, and Jeffrey wow. is 10. So Joy, we call our bonus baby. We weren't really planning on her way back when and so we just she's but a, we love her she's she, she's, a, she's just added so much <laughs> she's added so much to our family so she's a great and cute and wonderful baby she's so well behaved the thing though that um i really love to watch is her and her daddy Oh, yes. Because her daddy she is loves her flippy daddy. over her, too. Yes. And so I love to watch that. And we are very grateful that you're here. You, um, thank you. Talk about a bonus baby. You have your bonus family for us, and we're very oh, thankful thank you. that you all are here at West Huntsville. Um, she is going to lead us in a prayer, and then we're just going to dig right into our study. But before she does, I wanted to just say a couple of things about prayer, first of all. A great part of the providence of God for me is the praying women who are part of this group. And I just want to say thank you. And I know that I'm saying that on behalf of many who suffer with illnesses, who are grieving over the loss of loved ones, who are in many ways uh, at points of despair in their lives. Some are dealing with mental health issues. Some are are dealing with uh, the sin in the lives of people that they love. And I hear about these things so much, but I also hear from our Digging Deep for Encouragement group that you all are praying for each other. And I know that that is a great big bonus for all of us, a spiritual blessing of being a part of this group. And so if you're not praying along with this group and you would like to, those prayer requests are on a Facebook group wall called Digging Deep for Encouragement. And I would just encourage you to go there 
and be a part of that. I also am very thankful that in the West Huntsville family, we are, we've begun a Wednesday night prayer group for the ladies who can just run by room 119 after uh, our Bible study on Wednesday nights, and we are praying for one another in there, and that's been a great blessing for me as well, and I hope that some of you might be able to start that in your own congregations. Um, I also wanted to announce if I can, that there is a Purity Day on March 10th at the Fairview Church. That's at the bottom of Tennessee. So I know there are a lot of you who are in the state of Tennessee and Upper Alabama who listen. So if you are able to take your girls to that, that would be great. It's March 10th. And I went ahead and shared the Facebook page just now on my Facebook wall. So if you need information about that, you can go there this weekend. There are great some great activities occurring in the state of Tennessee. Um, I am blessed to get to be with the East Hill Church of Christ in Pulaski, Tennessee this weekend for their Ladies' Day. Be still and know from, that is Psalm, I've been studying it, I think it's Psalm 46. Be still and know that I'm God. And I'll be talking about that twice to the ladies at the East Hill Church in Pulaski, Tennessee. And Glenn, my husband, will be at the Crossville Tennessee Church, and I believe that's Thursday through Saturday, and I believe it's about leadership. It might, some of it might be about family, but I know that it begin, the kickoff is about leadership because we've been discussing that. Lots of good things happening, I know, in your area as well. I did want to mention those. I also want to mention before she prays that our next podcast will be March 27th, March 27th, which will be a Tuesday, and Erica Greaves will be traveling from Pulaski, Tennessee, from the Fairview Church to join me that night. So I'm looking forward to that. And now we will have our prayer. We'll go to God, and then we will just dig right into our study. Melissa. Dear God, thank you so much for this time that we're able to come together and study your word, to dig deep into your word as Christians, to learn more and grow. Uh, please bless Cindy for the work she's put into organizing the study and Thank you for each woman who's a part of it. Uh, help each one of us to learn something new each time we, we study this material. And study your word um, to dig deep. Uh, please bless Jennifer as she continues to help us with the technical aspects that make this possible to share this. Be with the women who maybe don't have a big group that can't, um, don't have as much support. Please bless them and let them be encouraged by this podcast. And be with Cindy and I as we um, share this with all of you. Um, thank you, especially, dear Lord, for your word, for all that it tells us and how to live our lives the way you want us to uh, and to go to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Providence is in every book of the Bible. It's on every page of the Bible. When we read about the law that God has given us through His Holy it is the Bible, as a matter of fact. This law that God has given us through His Holy Spirit is providence. It is God providing. And the Holy Spirit's miraculous age was providential so that we could have the age now where we learn the will of God from these pages. And how blessed are we that we are living in that era providence has provided that for us when he facilitates our temptation resistance or our ability to be patient through the trials and tribulations of this life that is providence when he gives us women who are praying for us men who are praying for us that is providence when he gives us the leadership of a godly husband that is providence 
Above all, when he gave us the blood of the perfect lamb, he provided what none of us could provide for ourselves and what we desperately needed, what we were lost and undone and hopeless without. And that is our salvation, the greatest gift of his providence. As I think about the concept of providence, I do want to make it clear that in other eras of time, providence was often miraculous. You know, as we study through this lesson, and someone asked this question last night, but how can you say this is providence when it was miraculous? I want us to get into our our minds, if we can, that pro- providence is really providence. It is the provision of God to his people, giving them what they need to ultimately be victorious in him. That's the definition of providence. And sometimes in eras past, that providence was often miraculous. And in some well, of- and there was a really great comment one of the women made in our local study last night that they said, I wrote it down, they said, miracles are providence, but providence is not always miracles. Right. And that made it, seemed to make it a lot clearer right. to a lot of us. So providence is a big umbrella, and under that umbrella is both the miraculous and the through nature events that occur to the spiritual betterment of God's people. So... Providence is the big umbrella that includes both the miraculous and the non-miraculous. And so specifically, just as you said, providence, the miraculous is always providence. I can't think of a miracle in the Bible that wasn't for, wasn't providing for people. Uh, Most of the miracles of Christ were providing something that someone desperately needed physically, a calming of a storm, food for the stomach, uh, wine for the wedding feast, a healing. But yet they were also providing for those people who had tender hearts to his will evidence that he was the Son of God. Right, his his miracles provided... um... Uh, it showed the evidence that he was who he said he was. Yeah, it was proof of that. And that was really the primary purpose of those miracles was to prove in the era of Jesus that he was the Son of God. And then as he left his apostles to do those miracles, they were proving that the words that they were writing down were inspired. And so this is not, you know, when I open my Bible, I say I'm studying And I'm not getting a miraculous revelation from God, and that's true. But what I'm holding in my hand is the product of many miracles. And how great is it that I get to hold in my hand something that was produced by the miraculous? I, I love that. It is providence, both in other eras there was there was much miraculous providence in our era today we are blessed by his providence working through the events that surround our lives romans 8 28 bringing them together all things work together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purposes so he works non-miraculously in this era now does that mean melissa that he's finished doing miracles forever can't mean that can it no, I mean, well, I mean, it'll be a miracle when Jesus comes back. Exactly. So when that, that trumpet blows, that'll be a miracle. The but, pause button will be pushed again. But we don't have everyday type miracles like we read about in the Bible. Right. So they haven't <clears throat> they haven't stopped. They've paused, and he will he will push that pause button again, and 
Heaven will forever be, of course, beyond the realm of the natural for us. So it's just a very um, deep and yet, oh, it's such a blessing to think about providence. Uh, it's a deep study, but it's such a, a blessing for me. So as we begin with question number one, we're in 1 Kings 13, and this is a man who is escaping by what means in verse 4. So we're going to begin by just reading the first seven verses of 1 Kings chapter 13. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice to the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Then he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Now it came about when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, that Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. But his hand which he stretched out against him dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes were poured out from the altar, according to the sign of the, which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat to the man of God, I'm sorry, said, said to the man of God, Please entreat the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. Okay, so here we have this <coughs> Jeroboam um, assaulting, really, the words of the man of God. And this man of God was a strong, he was so strong in verse 8. The man of God said to the king, if you give me half your house, I am not going home with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place, for it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread nor drink water nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. He was obviously a man of God because he had already proven that in these first seven verses by the withered hand. And so he's, he's saying, I'm listening to God and I will not disobey God no matter what, even though you are the king. So he was so strong in verse 8. But in verse 18, we find that he had been deceived. Read 17 and 18 there. <clears throat> For a command came to me by the word of the Lord, You shall eat no bread, nor drink water there. Do not return by going the way which you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So what happened here was this old prophet of Bethel decided he was going to go after him, and he told him a lie. He said, I am a prophet of God, and God has told me that he would like for you to come on home with me and eat and drink. And here, then, the, the man of God believed this lie and disobeyed. And what's going to happen to him later in the chapter? Do you remember? Oh, 
I forget now. His carcass is going to be, when he was gone, verse 24, a lion met him by the way and slew him, and his carcass was cast in the way, and the donkey stood by it, and the lion also stood by the carcass, and men passed by and saw the carcass and the lion standing by the carcass, and they came and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. So he's this deception that he believed cost him his life. And... So we see him, and this is a very interesting point, we see him in verse 8 being so strong for God. And then we see him in verse 18 falling because he believed a lie. And I think about that with regard to Christians today. Sometimes when the devil blatantly comes and wants us to commit a sin, and we know it's a sin, we're strong. And we are not, sometimes, we're strong. And we are not going to fall to sin that has sin written all over it, as did the first time. Because there was, you know, he just said, no, I'm not going home with you. You're wicked. He was wicked. And he had proven himself wicked. And sometimes when we look at people who are blatantly standing for wickedness, we're able to say, I don't want any part of that. But then when it's someone among us it's someone who claims to be a as this prophet did a man of god someone sometimes even in the kingdom who claims to be doing what is right and says something loving like right. come home with me and eat with me only it's different things right well that's that's how it's so important for us to study the word and know so that when someone who says they're a Christian comes to us and they're doing that sin or we witness that, that we can say, you know what, that's not right and not fall to that sin and maybe teach a brother. Correct. And Galatians 6 verse 1. But what the point here is that sometimes we, as people of God, have to be very careful about the grievous wolves that are among us rather than... Um, you know, we, we're able to identify if Satan would just put a sign on it every time and say, this is sin, right. you know, but that's not, he loves to deceive. And that's what he did first off in the garden of Eden. And that's what he's been doing. And Jesus called him the father of lies. So we have to be very careful that we are in this word. As she said, we have to be very careful that we're prepared for the times when sin doesn't have a sign on it. When it looks loving, when it looks kind, we have to be sure that we're looking in the word to see if, as the word says, a prophet is true. So that's that's what I wanted us to take really from this chapter. And also I wanted us to look at Jeroboam. Is there a time in Jeroboam's life when he escaped? Yeah. Right here in this chapter, he had a withered hand. And he escaped that fate of having a permanently withered hand. And what was his, what did he say in verse 6? What did he say about God in verse 6? He asked him, the man of God, to entreat God that is. And pray for me that my hand might be restored. Yeah, he said, entreat now the face of the Lord thy God. I wish he had said the Lord my God. But he said, entreat the face of the Lord thy God that he can restore me. He was very humble before God in verse 6. And he recognized that this was a man of God, that his God was, you know, you're talking about the God that can do this. And so then contrast verse 6 with verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again of the lowest 
of the people priests of the high places. He made low people priests who weren't qualified for the priesthood. Whosoever would, he whoever wanted to be a priest could be a priest. And he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing became sin into the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and destroy it from off the face of the earth. So here we have a prophet saying, oh, please entreat the Lord. Sometimes do we do that? We get in trouble and we say, oh, Lord, if you'll just take this malady from me, I'll do what. And then we're exalted again to the normal place of life as Jeroboam was. We go right back to it. And we it. go right back. So I, I also wanted us to notice that, well, there's really two people in this chapter that escaped and then went back and then went to sin. One was the prophet of God, and I feel sorry for him. I can't help but feel sorry for him because he believed a lie, and it was a credible lie that was a prophet from Bethel. I feel sorry for him, but he disobeyed God to believe a man. And so he was trapped in that way. And then Jeroboam escaped once and went right back into sin as well. Number two, do we have comments about number one? Uh, not yet. Okay. No. Number two is in First Kings chapter 17, and it is God taking care of a very faithful and very tired prophet. Who was that prophet in First Kings 17? Oh, this was uh, Elijah. That's right. And you know this story. We're not going to take time to read this chapter, but who was after Elijah? Oh, this was... I didn't write down which, We're which king it here. was. Oh, We're this is Ahab, Ahab here. Okay. One of the most wicked kings of the uh, land of Judah. And here we have... Ahab making groves, Ahab, verse 33 of chapter 16, provoking the Lord of God, the Lord God of Israel to anger more than all the kings that were before him. And Elijah has stood and stood and stood, and he is now on the run. Elijah the Tishbite, verse 1, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Well, did Ahab like that? Oh, no, no, Ahab, not at all. I have never liked Elijah. No. He hated Elijah, and so the word of the Lord came to, you better run, verse 3. Go ahead and read verse 3. Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Go ahead and read 4 as well. And it shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. I love that. I really wish I could have seen that. <laughs> but... um. So here we have some natural ways that God took care of this very tired prophet. He gave him a natural hiding place in verse 3. What else in verse 3, Melissa? Um, he also provided him, well, the water of the, the, water uh, of the brook. brook and then the meat and bread that the ravens brought to him right. each day. I love that the ravens obeyed the command of God. I just would have loved. I don't know if these were talking birds, but I know they were listening birds. And they obeyed the command of God. It says he commanded them to feed them. And then after he was at the brook for a little while, God told him to go to where? He went to Zarephath um, mm -hmm. to a widow who lived there. And God had also commanded the widow to take care of him. And remember he said... Uh, she said, um, I don't really have anything for you to eat. I'm gathering up sticks to build my last fire to cook my last cake for my son. And he said, bring me a little cake first. And she said, oh, you don't understand. But what was it that God provided for this widow? 
God provided um, an endless supply of meal and oil to make bread. They had plenty of food um, until the drought was over and they were able to get their own food They again. never ran out until the drought was over. They never ran out of ingredients. Have you ever ordered bottomless chips at Chili's? You know, that's not really bottomless. There yeah. is a bottom to right. that chip vat in the kitchen. But this was miraculously reproducing itself so that right. she never ran out of bread ingredients. And then I ask you to uh, see if you could recall a time in your life when you've been very tired and appreciated the gentle providence of rest and nourishment. I don't know if my friends in Honolulu are listening right now, but I want to talk about you for a minute. This winter... I don't want to say it's been horrific because the Collies have been very blessed. But compared to other times, we have we've been sick a lot this winter, and I know that your family's had some. We've stuff had the flu. Too. Yeah. yeah, we had flu B before Christmas, and then the passing of my dad happened in there, and then we had some sickness through the Christmas holiday, and then after Christmas we had the flu A. And then after that, we had, after the new year, right after the new year, we had the stomach flu. And right after that stomach flu, I mean, just barely in time to get on the plane, we flew to Samoa to do 10 days of work in, in, and, and I'm, you know, I loved it. I loved it. And the people there were so very good to us. But I think I spoke for 10 and a half hours with an interpreter. And speaking with an interpreter is pretty hard because mm. you have to think about when you're going to stop and let her say what needs to be said. And then it, we were 17 and a half hours in the air going there. And then 10 and a half hours speaking in those few days we were there, plus going to the meeting and visiting and a lot of counseling outside the speaking. And then that big trip back. And our last port before we actually entered the mainland was Honolulu. And those Christians, there's there's a Christian family there that we supported through the preaching school, Lima and Athena. And here they are, and all this has, has occurred through the last month. And they were so kind, so kind. And they said, we're in Honolulu. What do you want to see? And we said, you know what? Have you got a bed? Have you got have you just got a bed for us? And you know what? They they put us in a room with an open window in a 70 degree Honolulu in an upper room and let us sleep that layover away. And then when we woke up and got dressed, we went downstairs and they had been to Costco or Sam's and and bought ribs and and cooked them and seasoned them and cooked a bunch of, a whole big feast. And you know what? I thought about Elijah. What he needed was rest and nourishment. And I'm not, I'm not saying I was pitiful like Elijah was because we are so blessed. But there are sometimes in the lives of Christians when we really can help each other by just giving the simple things. And rest and nourishment is a great lesson that we learn from this chapter. What do you think? I think you're exactly right. I mean, and we may not be able to help someone all the time, but, you know, to help someone with, uh, you know, family problems or other things, new babies or something, just, you know, help them out for an hour or two and let somebody take a nap. That can be 
make a world of difference. Take you know? a nap. There, are not, there aren't very many things that can't get better with a nap. Right. And I think sometimes, oh, if you can, you know, if husbands could just listen right now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they can't. But if husbands could just, you know, realize that one hour sometimes will make their wives so much happier and so much easier to get along with. And so, you know, I think the same thing goes for children. Yeah. Yeah, children <laughs> who are past the napping yeah, stage. Yeah, exactly. Very good. And you have a 15-year-old now. Yes. And want to be nice sometimes when she comes in and says, "Mom, how about an hour?" Does she ever do that? No, but sometimes I say, "I'm going to take a nap. You're going to watch the baby." Uh, good. Good. <laughs> So she doesn't volunteer, but she's... She will do it, She yes. will do it. Okay. All right, good. Well, I just wanted to run that by you because I have had that occasion and other occasions, but that's just the most recent one that I thought of, that I really needed rest and food. That's what I needed, and Christians were there to give it to me. So God provided it for Elijah. Now, what comments do we have? Oh, we got a couple. Um... Beth says, God is always with us in difficult times when we feel alone and worn out. There are always simple provisions in life that he blesses us that we should recognize, and sometimes we are. Uh, oh, sorry, we are blessed with the gift of fellow Christians. So that is a blessing, just to be surrounded by mm -hmm. those Christians. And like you had just a few in Hawaii that mm -hmm. did so much for you. Mm -hmm. And is there is that all that we have that's all we have okay. so far all right good let's go to number three it says read about the deliverance of the moabites in second kings three. Oh, i wanted to tell you too there is a dig a bit about number two so if you haven't listened to that you might want to you might want to get some more insights from that dig a bit read about the deliverance of the moabites in second kings three was god involved in this and how do you know of course he was involved read read verses 16 through 20 Melissa of Second Kings 3. You said 16 through 20? Yes. Okay. And he said, Thus says the Lord, Make this valley full of trenches. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, both you and your cattle and your beasts. And this is but a slight thing to the, in the sight of the Lord. He shall also give the Moabites into your hand. Then you shall strike every fortified city and every choice city, and fell every good tree, and stop all springs of water, and mar every good piece of land with stones. And it happened in the morning, about that time of offering the sacrifice, that behold, water came by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. Okay, so here we have the Moabites hard up against um, Jehoram, the son of Ahab. He's reigning in Israel. And he is doing evil things, but Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, comes together in um, league with the son of Ahab, Jehoram, and they are together going to fight against the Moabites. And so God does this amazing thing and tells them to, I guess he, what you read is that he told them to make the valley full of ditches, and we know that... Some other versions say it a different way, but but I believe there was some digging that went on there. And the valley was filled with water, and probably uh, there had not been water in that valley before, and at least in a long time. And so the Moabites looked over in the morning, and the Bible says they saw the sun shining, verse 22, they rose up early in the morning and they saw the sun shining on the water and they saw the water on the other side as red as blood. 
Now, my question was, do you think that that was miraculous providence or just natural providence and it looked red to them? Did God make the water red or did the water look red? I guess that's the, the question that I ask here. What did you think about that? I don't know. I was kind of torn on it. Um, and I enjoyed some of the comments that were shared on the Facebook group about it. Just gives a lot to think about. But I mean, if nothing else, if God didn't provide the color, you know, God provided the water. And whether he, you know, how he did it, he still, it was his promise. He provided that, whether he knew that the sun would make it look red when there was water there, or if he just actually colored the water somehow. I don't know, but he, he definitely had a hand in it. I don't want to spend a long time on this because it doesn't matter. God was doing it either way. But uh, some of the commentaries that I read really thought it could be an optical illusion. And I tend to think that it was because it says they looked and the sun was shining on it. And it looked red. So I think they hadn't seen water there before. I think when they looked over, they saw the blood and they the blood quote-unquote, and they thought they'd killed each other. They thought that the armies of the Lord or the armies of Israel and Judah had killed each other, and that wasn't an uncommon occurrence. It happened in, you might want to look, Judges 7, verse 22, in 1 Samuel 14, verse 20. It had already happened, so that wasn't an uncommon thing. And I read from Clark, from Poole, from Trapp and Gill, who all thought it was an optical illusion. However... It does not matter. God was providing whether or not the this was a miracle or it looked like the water was blood. Whatever it was, these Moabites who were fighting for King Misha of the Moabites, they thought that the Israelites and the Judahites had turned on themselves and killed each other. And they went over to plunder Right. And found a surprise. Right. They weren't prepared to, ready to fight. They weren't ready to fight, and they were soundly defeated. Now, let's put up the Misha stone. This is the called the Misha steel, or it's also called the Moabite stone. And it is very interesting. Uh, read verse 4 of 2 Kings 3 for me right now, Melissa. Verse 4. Second Kings 3, verse 4. Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder and used to pay the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. Now look at this stone. I am Misha, son of Chemosh Gad, king of Moab the Dibonite. Do we have the stone, Jen? It just crashed. It crashed. Okay. Well, I'm going to show you this stone right here. Oh. Uh, 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 right here. See? There's the stone. And she might get it up in a minute and she might not, but this is a real stone that has been found in, um, I don't know what year it was found, but you can read about it. It's all over, all over the web. I'm Misha, son of Chemosh Gad, is what it says, king of Moab the Divinite. My father reigned over Moab 30 years, and I have reigned after my father, and I have built this sanctuary for Chemosh in Karka, a sanctuary of salvation. He was obviously idolatrous, <coughs> for he saved me. Chemosh saved me from all my aggressors and made me look on all mine enemies with contempt. Get this, Omri was king of Israel. Who's Omri? That's Ahab's daddy. 
Omri was king of Israel and oppressed Moab during many days, and Chemosh was angry with his aggressions. His son succeeded him. Uh, who's the son? He's the guy we're reading about in chapter 3, verse 1. His son succeeded him and also said, I will oppress Moab during many days. And Chemosh was angry with his aggressions. Okay. And he said, let us go and I will see my desire upon him. So uh, we're reading on this stone, we're reading the words of Misha, who is in verse 4. You know, I, I'm, I'm just amazed that people can look at the scriptures and say, you know, they're mythical. Right. When I, I, I'm, we're just, I hope we have time to go through all of these because there are several that I'm going to show you tonight. And some of these stones weren't found until 100 years ago or yeah. 50 years ago. And people were saying, oh, that didn't really happen. That didn't really happen. And then suddenly, oh, oh, we can read about I this I love king. every time there's something in the news that says, oh, look, they found this that proves this in the Bible. Yeah. I love those stories. And there's never a thing that they ever find that contradicts. It always supports. And so if, if this Misha stone wasn't found until 100 years ago... If the Hittites weren't found until around the turn of the 20th century, if, if those things weren't found a long, long time ago, then what makes you think there's not a whole bunch more that are going to back up what you're doubting today? So I love to think about that. Now, I just wanted you to see this stone that really proves that King Misha did exist at the same, and he mentioned both Omri and Ahab. So I think that that's really, uh, and he, he mentioned Omri and, and Omri's son Ahab, and then Ahab's son Jehoram is who we find in 2 Kings chapter 3. Cindy, we have several comments. If okay. we've got a minute Go to ahead. share some yeah. of those. Um, one of them I was about the last one about Elijah, real quick, I wanted to share. Um, Tanya says, Elijah was tired and discouraged, too, partly because he felt very alone. God was quick to point out that there were others who were still serving him. Um, and that she said, made an interesting contrast here. She said, I love contrasting it with Noah, who really was alone. And then several times it's recorded that he did all that God commanded. So even when they were alone, they continued, even when they're discouraged, they did what God said. Mm -hmm. Really good point. If but Elijah had what? 7,000 that didn't bow the knee to Baal, I think he said. I forget, but I yeah, quite a few. I think that's the number, and um, Noah had eight total. Right. So I love, that is a good contrast. Okay. Um, several people have made comments about the whether it was miraculous or not, the water looking like blood. Um, I wanted to point out Jessica's comment. It was really good. She said, it's just so interesting to think that even nature can be used for good in God's providence. It's his creation after all. Which is true because this is it was just it was nature it was the water exactly in the valley there so exactly all right let's move on then to number four read second Kings seven in verse one elisha the prophet of god made a promise that people could hardly believe what was that promise that he made do you remember second Kings oh, chapter the, seven yeah the promise about the cost of flour and barley because during the the famine and all it was so expensive and he they said, they didn't have any. They couldn't yeah. afford it if it was there. Right. And he said, tomorrow it's going to be dirt cheap. 
basically. Yeah. And there was a man who was standing there who said, if the Lord made windows in heaven, could this thing happen? And then Elisha said, Elisha said, you will see this happen, but you will not eat it. He's pointing out two senses this man had. Your, your eyes are going to see it, but your mouth is not going to taste this food because you're doubting what I have said. And then as we read the chapter, what did actually occur? Well, that's when um, the leprous men uh, were near at the gate there, and they discovered that these uh, the army that had laid siege to the city there they go out there and discover that there's no one there. The tents are there. The animals are there. Everything was left, but except the people. It looked like they left in a hurry. And these men come back and they say, you know what? We don't need to take all of this stuff. And they... We better go tell. Yeah, we better go tell the king and let everybody know. And so it came to pass, verse 18, as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. And that Lord answered the man of God and said, If the Lord should make a window in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, Behold, you'll see it with your eyes, but you won't eat thereof. And verse 20, read verse 20. And so it happened to him for the... For the people trampled him at the gate, and he died. <laughs> there was a trampling at the gate. There was so much excitement here going right. on. And this man was trampled and died, just as the prophet had said. So, by the end of the chapter, the providence of God had delivered, and you were told to... to Find the word picture, and the word picture obviously is that God has a window. Right, that he's able to look down and you see You know, us. this man didn't believe he had a window. He was sarcastically saying, even if God had a window and he could pour this out, you know, does God have a window? What does Malachi say about it? It says he does. Malachi 3, verse 10. If you'll turn there quickly and read Malachi 3, verse 10, there's another reference to the people... Um, to the window of God. You might want to start in verse 9. Okay. It says, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now on this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. There's a dig a bit about that. If you haven't listened about the window of heaven, God's got a window. And he can hear us and he can know what's going on. He hears our prayers. He's got it open. And he can pour out blessings from that window. So I wanted us to see that word picture. I also want us to notice, uh, go back to chapter 6 of Second Kings. Second Kings chapter 6. And here we read about who, they're fighting the Syrians, of course, in chapter 7. And here in, in chapter 6, we read about who the king was that had besieged Samaria and started all this in the first place. Chapter, verse 24 of chapter 6. Okay, now it came out, excuse me, it came out after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. Okay, so we have the mail cart still, and I hope she's got a picture of that. And the mail cart still has this designation. It says he was co-regent. This is Ben-Hadad, son of Hadad-Ezer. 
and he says he served in the mail cart still. It says that he served as co-regent with his father, Hadad Ezer. It says Ben-Hadad was his father's immediate successor as king, as seems to be implied by the military policy reversal between 2 Kings 6, 3-23 and 6-24. This Ben-Hadad was the same one assassinated in 2 Kings 8, 7 to 15. So if you're looking at that stone now and you uh, were you were able to read the language of the day, you would be reading about this same king of Syria who was defeated in chapter 7 of the book of 2 Kings. So I just I thought that was very interesting. So let's now look at 1 Kings chapter 21 verse 19 and that's where the lord made a promise regarding the death of ahab and i'm going to give you this one now and this is where god made a promise about the death of ahab and we won't read chapter 22 but we will read the promise in first kings 21 19. he said and you shall speak to him saying thus says the lord have you murdered and also taken possession and you shall speak to him saying thus says the lord in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs shall lick up your blood, even yours. Okay, let's don't take a bunch of time, but who was Naboth? He was the man whose vineyard Ahab stole, Coveted, stole, and in the process killed. Right. So he killed Naboth, and God says, in Naboth's vineyard is where the dogs are going to lick up your blood. So in chapter 22, we have this amazing chapter where um, Ahab is killed in battle after listening to 400 false prophets rather than listening to Micaiah. I am amazed at, I just wish I could take the whole rest of the time and talk about the boldness of Micaiah, the sarcasm of Micaiah. He was a great man, but there's a dig a bit about him too. So if you want to listen to that. But Ahab is killed in this battle after listening to 400 false prophets rather than listening to the prophet of the one prophet of God. And sometimes in our land today, there's 400 faults to everyone. True prophet. The dogs licked up his blood when his chariot was washed. So he bled all over his chariot. And in chapter 22, verses 37 and 38, the chariot was washed and water mixed with blood goes on the stone and the dogs lick up that blood. Now this is an amazing chapter. In chapter, in verse 9, um... Let's see. Am I looking at the right place? Twenty-two, verse nine. No, that's where we're, where Micaiah was called. Jehu, the servant to. Let's see. Now I'm in Second Kings nine and ten to find out how God is orchestrating the death of Jezebel. So let's look at Second Kings, chapter nine and ten. Sometimes do these just overwhelm you? Um, the complication of what all is going on and the skipping Very. of the chapters. <clears throat> so here we have, and she's going to tell us something that helped her in just a minute. But first off, let's look at Second Kings chapter 9. I, this is an amazing chapter. Jehu, the servant to Ahab, was all of a sudden anointed king by Elisha, right? So Elisha comes to him, and he's with, he's with a group of Ahab's servants, and he says... I like to see you in private. 
And I remember Jay, he looked up and said, who are you talking to? And he said, I'm talking to you. And so they went off in a private place and he poured oil on his head, anointing him as king. And I'm sure Jay, he was like, what is this about? I'm the king's servant. I'm not the king's son. Right. But all of a sudden, Jehu comes out and announces that he is going to be the future king, that he's going to take the throne. So Ahaziah, who is at present the king of Judah. Now Ahab's kingdom is going on in Israel. But Ahaziah, who's the king of Judah, comes to visit Jehoram then, who is the son of Ahab and is the king of Israel, should be the king of Israel. So the messengers of Joram keep going out to Jehu and saying, what's going on? What's going on? He sends messengers to try to find out why Jehu is riding with, with these men. And every time he sends a messenger, they defect over to Jehu. They're smart. They understand that God has sent Elisha to Jehu and he's going to be the next king. So they defect and they go into the army of Jehu. So then finally, Joram... I, he's called Joram sometimes and Jehoram sometimes. But he goes out personally to meet Jehu, and then he gets an idea of what's happening, that Jehu is taking over the kingdom and that he's in trouble, and he runs away from Jehu, who is going to kill him. And then Jehu does kill Joram <coughs> with an arrow, and Jehu then had Joram buried where? In Naboth's vineyard. Yeah, everything's going to happen here in this amazing, in this famous vineyard. So he buries the, who should be the future king of Israel, but God's taken the kingdom out of Ahab's family for a time. So he should be the future king of Israel, but Jehu, the servant of Ahab, is now burying the king, and he's going to take over the kingdom for a time. Ahaziah who is the king of Israel, is also killed at this time by Jehu. And Jehu just keeps on writing. Jehu was a modern-day interstate New York City driver. That's what he was. Because what does the Bible say in 920? Is that the one where he drove furiously? And the watchman told, saying... He came into them and comes not again, and the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. He was a fast driver, and they recognized him because he was driving fast. So uh, I just thought that was interesting. So Jezebel then puts on her headdress because she hears that Jehu is coming that way with his army of men, and she puts on her headdress and what else? Her makeup right she's going to she's about to die and she must know she's about to die it's been prophesied surely she had a hint that the dogs are about to lick her blood but she she wanted to believe it or not and gets dressed up for this occasion so she puts on that headdress and her makeup and then she is cast down from the palace and you know i wish we had time to talk about all the details but she's cast down And I think it even says she hits on the way down, and um, there's blood then on the wall. Let's find that verse. At uh, 33. Okay, 33. And he said, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. This Jehu was amazing. 
And you think that, you know, I mean, all in this chapter, I'm saying, go Jehu, go Jehu. He's doing what God wants him to do. And, you know, we're fixing to find out what kind of man he really was. But, oh, he he had a stomach on him because he, he, he said, throw her down. She hit the side of the wall, apparently. There's blood on the wall. There's blood on the horses. And then he ran over her. And then what did he do? It says in 34, he came in and he ate and drank. So he went in for a sandwich while the dogs were chewing her body up. Right. And and then he sent her out. He said, well, she is a queen. We have to go get her so we can bury her. And what was left of her? Not much. Uh, no more was found of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. So what was buried of Jezebel was the skull, the feet, and the palms of her hands. Ooh. Um, I haven't been, uh, this just doesn't make me feel very well. But in chapter 10 then, Jehu has 70 sons of Ahab killed. Ahab had been prolific in having children. 70 sons of Ahab were killed, and he intended to wipe them all out. But we know that that one was saved for the later kingship, and I guess we don't have time to dis- to discuss that, but one son was hidden right? so that there was an heir of Ahab to restore the kingdom to at a later point. So Jehu has 70 sons of Ahab killed. Then he has all the brethren of Ahaziah killed for being in cahoots with Ahab. And I, remember, Ahaziah was the king of Israel. So all of his brothers are killed. And then in 10 verse 17, Jehu destroyed the rest of Ahab's house, except for that one that was hidden. And then we find out that he destroyed the Baal worshipers, and he did that in a, in a deceitful way too. He said, let's worship, come on, let's worship Baal. And they all went into worship, and then when they were leaving, he, that was how he identified who the Baal worshipers were, and as they were leaving, he had them killed. So he he tricked them into coming to worship Baal, but he killed the Baal worshipers. But then at the end, uh, by the end of chapter ten, we see that Jay it was Jehu did a great thing for the kingdom of Israel. But was he personally? Did he personally have an alliance with God? Was he true to God? Not not completely. <clears throat> so verse thirty one. Read verse thirty one of chapter ten. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel sin. So here we have one more man who actually had an escape many times. He was not defeated by Ahab. He was not defeated by Jezebel. He was not. Um, he was in cahoots with Ahaziah. He had an army of people following him. He destroyed 70 sons of of Ahab, and then he destroyed all the brothers of Ahaziah. We're thinking, go, go, go. But for him personally, right? he wasn't going to die and get to go to heaven. No. Because he wasn't true to God. He had an escape, but he didn't take advantage of that escape. Do we have an escape always? Always we do. There's always something. First, That's our verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We have an escape, but we have to take advantage of that way of escape. Before we leave this question, and we're going to take your comments in just a second, but before we leave it, I wanted us to look at the archaeology of, um, one more time, I wanted us to look at um, Ahab the king, um, the um, 
Shalmanezer. Do you have a Shalmanezer on your list, Jennifer? Uh, yeah, show, show us that obelisk of Shalmaneser. Um, this one, the one in Scripture is, is Shalmaneser IV. He's found in 2 Kings 18 and 19 and in Hosea 10, 14. The one that, that um, is on the... Um, is on the monolith is Shalmaneser the third of Assyria, but he was in the days of Ahab because he calls him on this obelisk. He calls him Ahab the Israelite. So we know that uh, these Shalmanesers existed, and we read about them in Second Kings eighteen and nineteen, and. In Hosea 10:14, when Hosea is reviewing, I think he calls him. Um, look at Hosea 10:14. I think he calls him a shortened form of Shalmaneser, but it is it is still obviously the same man, and it is the same family of Shalmanesers that we read about on this monolith. What was the passage that Jennifer in is showing you? Uh, Hosea 10, uh, verse 14. 14. Therefore, a tumult shall, will rise among your people, and all your fortresses will be destroyed. And Shalman destroyed... As, right? Oh, as, sorry, you're right. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Okay, this is um, a reference to Shalmaneser, and it is the same Shalmaneser family that we read about on the obelisk of Shalmaneser. So, and then I wanted us to look, let's see, at Ahab as well. I think there, I think I had another one about Ahab. Um, let's see. Well, he's a bunch of places. Um, on the, and Jehu is on the obelisk of Shalmaneser. And on that obelisk, it says, uh, that is, if you looked at that obelisk real well, you could see a man bowing down on there. That was Jehu, and that's his picture, and it's it's described as the tribute of Jehu, which was much silver. So I thought that was that was really interesting. Um, so let's now we've got another one or two that we want to see. Well, Cindy, if you don't mind, I just take okay. a minute and share. Um, I posted on the Facebook yeah, group earlier this week. This. You know, these kings and the prophets, these group, they're very confusing. I think Cindy saw my face a few times just then in this last discussion that I kind of got lost. Um, and so I'd asked about some uh, sources, and I went on, I went and did some searching, and I found some really good um, timelines. Uh, Jennifer is showing you one of them now. I'm not sure who the groups are that put these together, but there's some excellent ones. They show not only the kings of Israel and Judah, they show the prophets, where they all lined up, and the kings surrounding kings of these other nations that they've dealt with either in wars or alliances and so forth. Uh, I just thought it was a really great help when you're studying this to go back. Unfortunately, I didn't find this in time to get to study them very much, but to help us keep all of that straight because it is very confusing mm. if you're not careful. Even if you can keep straight the kings, uh, because the Bible tells us sometimes there's another one, the mm. the key, the Bible tells us sometimes that 
Okay, this king was serving, Ahaziah, for instance, was serving in Israel while Joram was serving in, I got that backwards. Ahaziah was serving, see, it's hard. Ahaziah was serving in Judah while um, Ahab's family, Joram, was serving in Israel. And the Bible will tell us that. But what were the prophets that were teaching right. then? And who were the kings that were contemporaneous that they were battling against in Babylon or Assyria or um, Persia. Who were those kings? And, and then so, as one died, and then you so also there this king, but then that king. You have to you know when it lines them up, so, and you can see how they overlapped in these stories. It makes it's so much clearer. So these charts are showing us um, who's contemporaneous with who, and I think that you put those links. On the, did you put those uh, links on? You put them on the local group. Uh, yeah, so we'll, I think Jennifer's getting them put on our uh, on okay. the Facebook. She's page. got them on the Facebook page as well, so that might be helpful to you. Now, I wanted us to look <coughs> at. Um, I want to be sure that we're not leaving out one of those stones that I wanted us to talk about. Um, the let me look at the. Okay, all right, we're not there yet. Okay, now, and, and we're going to run out of time, obviously, but I just think that for this one time, I wanted to show you a little bit of the archaeology because this is just um, scraping the, the top of the mountain here as far as, uh, that was a pun. <laughs> this is just scra scraping the top of the mountain as far as the archaeology is concerned, but this time I just thought I really want us to understand that the skeptics would not like us to know the things that we're showing tonight, which have the names of the people who are, they were real people who fought real battles, who really saw red water, who really saw dogs licking up the blood of Ahab and Jezebel. Right, these aren't see. mythical people because these um, documents were written by governors of those lands. And so I really wanted us to get that this time. And I hope you are um, enjoying it as much as I am. So we're going to really quickly do number six. As we can see from this quick bird's eye view, some of the events of the kings of Israel, wickedness was rampant. Second Kings 13, 23 tells why God kept providing for the endurance of Israel. And 2 Kings 13.23 says, But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. It was because he had a covenant. And our God does not break his covenants with his people. We break covenants. But our God does not break covenants with his people. And what was the covenant all about? It was about the Messiah. Right. God was bringing these events to pass in Judah and Israel because he had a covenant with these people. And he was bringing about a Messiah through that covenant. So now let's look at number seven. Um, we won't spend a lot of time here. Obviously, we don't have it. But in 2 Kings 25 and in Jer Jeremiah 52, we find parallel accounts of something that, that happened to Jehoiakim. So let's just quickly look at the bottom of 2 Kings chapter 25. And we find that what happened is that God's people had been carried away to Babylonian captivity. 
And at the bottom of 2 Kings chapter 25, Jehoiakim is in Babylonian captivity. It has been a very oppressive captivity. He's in prison. But there is a king in verse 27 named Evil Merodach. And Evil Merodach, and I think it's uh, interesting that his name begins with evil. But he started to reign in Babylon in that in a, this year. And it says in verse 27 that he lifted up the head of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, out of prison. Go ahead and read 28 and 29 and 30. And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. And Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. And after he came, after he got out of prison, he had a son who was going, and both he and his son were in the royal seed line of the Messiah. What if he had rotted away in that prison? Never happened. Jesus wouldn't have happened. He lifted up Jeconias out of prison. And in Matthew 1, verses 11 and 12, we read of Jeconias and his son and his son's sons as being in the messianic lineage. They were the forefathers, the ancestors of Jesus Christ himself. So here we have a king rotting away in prison, and suddenly we have um, the king of Babylon rising up, evil Merodach, and saying, I, I want to be nice to him. I'm going to let him have bread to eat. I'm going to give him an allowance. So I'm sure he was considered a liberal king, not an oppressive king. But here we have something happen that's going to save the seed line of the Messiah. Do we have comments? I haven't asked for comments in a uh, long time. No, we don't have any right now. Okay, good. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Comment, please comment. But I, I just I want to show you before... We leave tonight, and we're, gonna, we're not going to get to nearly all that we wanted to, but I want to show you um, a couple more, or at least one more, of these um, fragments of, that were discovered at Babylon. Let's look at uh, the one about Jehoiakim, which um, is... Uh, do you have one that says Evil Merodach? We'll see what we have. I picked these out today, but I didn't necessarily put the names of the kings with them. Let's look at the uh, Kirk monolith. The Kirk, no, let's look at the Babylonian tablet. The Babylonian tablet. That Babylonian tablet that you see right there is, um, it has on it the portions that were given to Jehoiakim. The Babylonian tablet has the portions that were given to um, Jehoiakim, and I, as I went reading this, I saw that it would say, I think he had five, five sons in the end, and they were, he, he and his sons were given rations of food, and those rations of food are listed on this Babylonian tablet. Um, they're dated from the 10th to the 35th year of Nebuchadnezzar, the second king of Babylon and conqueror of Jerusalem. And one tablet calls Jehoiakim king. A secondary fragment mentions him as king in an immediate context that refers to sons of the kings of Judah and the Judahites. The third tablet calls him the son of the king of Judah and refers to the five sons of the king of Judah. 
The fourth text, the most fragmentary of all, confirms Judah and part of Jehoiakim's name, but contributes no data that's not found in the other four. Um, these were excavated not until it, the excavation started in the year 1899, and it refers to Yaokinu, and when you look at Yaokinu, you can look at um, the Arabic there and see that um, they also called him the king of Yahuda. And when you look at Yahuda, you have, you say that really fast, Yahuda. It's <laughs> Judah. It is the king of Judah, and it talks about his five sons. The most interesting name is Yaakin, king of the land of Yahud, which is Judah, along with five royal princes. Now, the name of the book that talks about, um, we also have Evil Merodach, who is um, this king, and he is on the Babylonian tablet. His name is there, and you can see there's a book called um, Ancient Mesopotamian Materials and Industries. I'll, I'll put that on the Facebook page, Ancient Mesopotamian Materials and Industries, and it talks about this name, Yaakin, Jehoiakim, is in a passageway along with the name of Nebuchadnezzar. I just think that all of these are amazing examples. And, and there's one more, of course, the Cyrus Cylinder that uh, we're going to not get to talk about very much. But I hope that you read about it as you were studying about the king of Persia and about his um, kindness that he extended to Ezra and Nehemiah in letting them go back and rebuild the wall in the city of Jerusalem. So especially we're talking about Ezra here. So Daniel, I'm just going to give you these verses that I got and you look them up. Daniel's good attitude, his excellent spirit is in verse 3. His good reputation, I believe, is in verse 5. They couldn't find any occasion against him except they found it against him concerning the law of his God. His decision to serve publicly is verse 10. He was not going to go private with his prayer, even though he knew the consequences of being caught praying. He, he, did, not go pro he did not change his practice because of persecution. We should not change our practices because of persecution. His influence over the throne is clear from lots of verses, but I put 14 to 16 because the king tried and tried and tried to deliver him and recognized his God as the God. Verse 21, he said, O king, live forever. I believe that shows his respect for authority. And then, of course, the victory is at the end of the chapter when Darius exalted God um, and recognized that God's kingdom was the everlasting kingdom. Now, I want to just show you that picture of the cylinder. You've, you saw it as you were reading. This is Cyrus of Persia. And, of course, you know that the Israelites were taken captive by the, um, or the we're talking about Judah now specifically, taken captive by the Babylonians. But the Persians then conquered the Babylonians and then allow them to go back. And they, yeah, they got to keep the captives. So the Persians have the captives now. And so then Isaiah in Isaiah 44, verse 28, prophesied. And he said the name of the man. Read Isaiah 44, 28, if you've got it. He said the name of the man who was going to extend 
this mercy and let them go back and rebuild? What did he say in 4428? It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Okay, I just want to say before, our, I know we, we have to go, but I, I do want to say that this is 200 years before Cyrus ruled, and then Cyrus was, um, he was not just benevolent to the Israelites. He was a liberal king in that he rose up and said, these people shouldn't be kept from their religions. Let's let these people who are in our domain, let's let them worship their gods. And it wasn't just about the the Judahites. It was about uh, the Egyptians. It was... Uh, lots of nationalities that were under the the big rule of Persia. And Cyrus said, historically, in the Bible, of course, we're reading about the Judahites, but historically, and on this cylinder, he was letting a lot of people go back and return to their religions. Now, here is the controversy that you saw or the apparent contradiction that you saw. This cylinder with the words of Cyrus explaining his ascent to the throne of Persia and his desire to let people who were ruled by by Persia go back to their established religions is amazing. You saw the cylinder, there's the cylinder. And, and on that cylinder, he gives credit for the idea of this of letting these people go back and serve their gods he gives it to his god which is is it marduk marduk yeah marduk he says okay my god marduk wants me to let all these people go back and worship their gods now the apparent contradiction is that when we read about this in the bible especially in uh, chronicles when we read about it in Chronicles, we read that he is letting, I'm going to find this for you, that Second Chronicles 36, verses 22 and 23, clearly he's giving in Second Chronicles 36, 22 and 23, he's giving the credit of the idea to Jehovah God. Go ahead and read those verses. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill, Fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Wherever, whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Okay, so here he's saying, Jehovah God gave me this idea. Jehovah put this in my mind. And on the Cyrus cylinder that you just saw, it says, my God, Marduk, told me to do this. So is that a contradiction between what historically is being said and what biblically is being said? Well, it doesn't matter really if it's a contradiction because we're going to believe the Bible. But... It seems to me that there's no contradiction there because obviously Cyrus believes in all the gods. He's letting all these people go home to their gods. He's letting the Judahites go home to their Jehovah God. So if he wanted to be popular with the people of Judah, 
And he believed their God was a God just as much as anybody else. Plus, their God was really the one that talks. Right. What would he say in Second Chronicles? He would say to them, I love your God. Yeah. Your God's talking to me. Your God's telling me that you can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. Right. But if he was making a government document <clears throat> for history, for people who were worshiping Marduk. And for his people, that his people were going to read. Yeah, for people that were worshiping Marduk, for his people, what would he say? Would he say, I'm listening over to the, 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 these captives, I'm listening to their God? Right. What would he say if he was polytheistic? He's just gonna he's gonna give it to his God. Oh uh, yeah, he would give it to his God right then because he believed in all the gods. But one God really was talking to him. Right. And so we read about that God in Second Chronicles. But for a government document, there was uh, when did deceit in government start? A long time ago. A long time ago. It's everywhere. So of course, for a government document. He is going to say, Marduk told me to do this. I don't, I don't see how that's a historical contradiction with biblical evidence. I believe that those things align perfectly. If, you think, if you're polytheistic and you think all the gods are talking to you, I don't see that there's a contradiction there. And I just wanted to be sure that I said that since that controversy was introduced in one of the articles that you read. It seems to me that polytheistic gods could ascribe commands that polytheistic kings could ascribe commands to more than one god so i don't see that there is a contradiction there i do see that the cyrus cylinder is amazing we have it is in the british museum but we have a replica of it in uh, new york city in the second floor hallway of our united nations building right between the Security Council and the Economic and Social Council chambers. I'm telling you, the uh, people who work closely with our President of the United States in these United Nations buildings and who work closely with sovereigns around the world pass by this stone in their hallway every day as a reminder that it was the first Bill of Rights. Right. And so I, I just think that that is extremely interesting. Um, I am sad that we don't have a lot more time. Um, the Cyrus Cylinder says, May all the gods <coughs> whom I have resettled in their sacred cities. See, he's acknowledging all these god gods. May all these gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities ask Baal and Nebo, false gods, for a long life for me, and may they recommend me to him. To Marduk, my Lord, they may say this. He's asking the people of Judah to go home and tell Jehovah to say this to Marduk, Cyrus, the king who worships you, and Cambyses, his son, and then the rest of that line is destroyed. It's probably a good, uh, you know, um, I'm not surprised the rest of that line's destroyed. <laughs> Um, I, that is a, a real affront to Jehovah God to ask people to say to their God, will you protect Marduk, my God? You know, and the rest of those lines are destroyed. So that's, that's interesting that they are not there anymore. Do we have comments and we're going to have to? Uh, no, you know, we don't. 
Oh, are you not commenting because I said don't comment? I really want you to comment every single time. Okay, so we're not getting into the New Testament, but I, I and I know that you we did you did a lot of work on that, and That's okay. I, I'm, I, I have a lot of notes here too, but I will try to um, before the month is up, which I think I have two more days. Do I have two? I have one more day, I think, yeah. before the month right. is up. So I guess tomorrow I'm going to try to do a dig a bit on these New Testament passages, just briefly um, listing. And I guess even now we could say in Matthew 2, what what did God provide? He provided the escape for Mary, Joseph, and Jesus from Herod. And so they went down into Egypt, and he provided that miraculously, right, with a dream, right. an angel, and a dream. And then um, in Luke 8, I have verse 2, Mary Magdalene escaped. I'll let you do the next one, uh, number 13. I have two verse 2, Mary Magdalene's escape from the evil spirits. Verses 19 to 22, Jesus escaped from the press of the crowd. Verse 24, um, escaped from the storm. Verse 29, the man was delivered from the evil spirits. Verse 43 and 44, the woman was delivered from the issue of blood. In verses 54 and 55, Jairus' daughter escaped death. So we have every kind of escape in Luke chapter 8. You know, let's save John 11 for okay. the dig a bit because it's so powerful. John 11 right, is so powerful. Right, there's a lot to cover and a lot to and discuss And then you that. go ahead and list um, the what you had for number 14. Okay, um, and this one I did want to point out because we discovered last night in our study that there are actually supposed to be five chapters. Some of the online ones didn't list uh, chapter 28, so if I throw some out there from chapter 28, it was an accident. There's an oversight. Um, you can go back and read that. Um, but the uh, escapes that I found, uh, starting in verse, or, excuse me, chapter 5, the apostles released from prison by an angel of the Lord, um, verse saying verse in chapter 16 there was the spirit of divination was removed from the girl and then you also had the earthquake that opens the prison where paul and silas are it also leads to the jailer being delivered from death as he you know then believes um the things they were teaching in chapter 18 paul is released by gallio in verses 12 through 17 and apollo also is um Got saved from the false teaching. He learns um, the truth fully. Uh, when we jump down into chapter 27, that's the big shipwreck chapter with Paul and his shipmates that, you know, the ship falls apart and they all are, they all survive. And then in 28, Paul survives the sna snake bite where everybody thought he was just going to fall over dead and he didn't. Those are the ones that I had. There may be some more. Some people um, in our discussion included some who were baptized in those chapters as the you know, spiritual mm -hmm. escapes. So mm -hmm. you may have listed a lot more. Yeah, I, I listed a few more. I had Publius in 28. He was healed by Paul. And it said a bunch of people were healed by Paul, too. And in 16, Paul was uh, excluded from being delivered to the captain of the guard with the other prisoners. So that was an escape for him personally, I think in chapter 28, but you could have included more. I included Lydia, I included uh, Crispus and the Corinthians that were delivered from sin in chapter 18. But that is, of course, you were you were asked to find at least one, I think. So you really didn't find at least one providential escape, miraculous or otherwise. So you could choose between just a plethora of things in those chapters. You've been really patient with us tonight. Thank you so much. We'll try to 
to uh, stay a little bit closer to the hour next time. This was a lot of material, but it was, it was a, lot a lot. Good material. Very good. I very love good. the word. And so we're going to close with prayer, and we hope you will join us on March 27th when we will be back. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the promise that there will never be a temptation that we are unable to bear, but with every temptation you will provide a way of escape. It's amazing, Father, that not only did you provide these escapes in these ancient accounts that happened even hundreds of years before you came to the earth in the flesh, but historians recorded these occurrences, some of them, and especially mentioned these men that the scriptures mentioned, Father, we sometimes pray increase our faith and how can we better find anchor for our faith and assurance and, and be positive when we look at even external evidences, Father. We believe your word because it is your word and we have faith, but Father, we have external evidences. We have evidences all around us in nature, in archaeology, in geology, in paleontology. We are so thankful, Father, for the amazing providence you give for our faith. Help us to keep growing in faith and help us not to let our children and our grandchildren grow up without knowing that those things that men are going to hide from our ears and our eyes are there and help us to realize the great responsibility we have as mothers and grandmothers to uncover your truths both in your word and in external evidences father that point points so definitively to the historicity of your word we are so thankful that you've given us these. Most of all, we're thankful for the providence that came our way on that hill far away <coughs> between two thieves. When your son looked over at one of those thieves who was penitent and said, this day you'll be with me in paradise, he is the only one who has the authority because of the blood that he shed to save us. He is the author and finisher of our salvation and we are so thankful for that providence help us to walk in the ways that you've prescribed for us in your word and bring as many people to heaven with us as we can please bless those who are hurting bless those who are facing diagnoses that they prayed they would not face bless those who are lonely bless those who are suffering from sin around them and bless those who are sorrowing over the deaths of loved ones. We are so thankful for the way you provide. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. If you find yourself in Huntsville, Alabama, we'd love for you to worship with us at West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest. Sunday morning worship begins at 9 a.m., followed by Bible classes for all ages. We meet again at 5 p.m. for evening worship and at 7 on Wednesday night. This is a Digging Deep in God's Word production, a Bible study for women. For more information, visit thecolleyhouse.org.